If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Beyond the Paper Gown, hosted by Dr. Mitzi Crockover, helps people think critically about women's health issues, encouraging them to question and explore the complexities of healthcare systems, scientific advancements, and societal norms. There's a really cool episode that you should check out called Midday Menopause App. And that's about how AI and sensor technology can provide personalized interventions to manage menopause symptoms effectively. Check out Beyond the Paper Gown on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. What do you think about when I say Mexican immigration? Do you think about the codependency between corporations and the economy? There's actually good documented evidence to show that some of these meatpacking industries actually went into Mexico to recruit workers to bring them in to the United States as undocumented. So you can see then there's this kind of crazy mechanism that immigrants are actually keeping a lot of these industries alive. And do you know the racist history that informed the strategic plan to sustain our economy? What eugenicists did is they justified the importation of Mexican labor based on the idea that Mexicans were born to do stoop labor, that there were a group of people that were inclined to do stoop labor. And there's no better people than to have Mexicans do stoop labor in the United States. I mean, that's, that's right out of the congressional record. Or how quickly gratitude turns to hatred. With Bracero workers that provided the food for the soldiers and for the home front, you'll see article after article in the 1940s from communities saying, if it wasn't for these workers, our farmers would have died. If it wasn't for these workers, our crops would have died in the fields. And so there's praise after praise. And then, of course, if you fast forward to the contemporary period, you don't see that too much. Hi, I'm Dr. Raj Sundar, a family physician and a community organizer. You're listening to Healthcare for Humans, the show dedicated to educating you on how to care for culturally diverse communities so you can be a better healer. This is about everything that you wish you knew to really care for the person in front of you, not just a body system. Let's learn together. Welcome back to Healthcare for Humans. You just heard from Dr. Garcia again. This is part two of the episode with Dr. Garcia. Today, we're diving into history. Now, I know I've talked about this before, and maybe I don't need to justify it, but I have to reiterate this. Our past shapes our present and future, especially when it comes to health. So as a clinician, it's important you're knowledgeable about the history of the communities that you're caring for. And maybe now is the right time to talk about Paul Farmer. Many of you probably already know him, but Paul Farmer is a physician, medical anthropologist, and co-founder of Partners in Health, a nonprofit organization that focuses on caring for marginalized communities around the world. He was an incredible, passionate advocate for the communities that he cared for. Many books have been written about this, and if you haven't read any of them, you should read Mountains Beyond Mountains by Tracy Kidder. But Paul Farmer died February 21st, 2022. And after his death, many, many people memorialized him, appropriately so. But what I found missing after this process was that people didn't memorialize his philosophy, what he believed in, and what made him him. His philosophy of life and work was based on liberation theology. We'll probably need a whole episode to talk about that specifically. But it focuses on addressing the structural causes of illness and health disparities. He understood that healthcare is not just about treating symptoms, but also addressing the root causes of health issues, which often lie in social, economic, and political factors. 
It's about understanding the history of a community and its people so you know how that history has impacted their health today. Covering history is hard because there's lots of complexity around it, depending on who wrote it, who recorded it. But my goal is to make history as accessible as it can be, even if it's incomplete. I want to give people some kind of foundation to anchor onto. So today, we're diving into a crucial part of the Latino-Latina history, the history of Mexican immigration. Because it's important to remember that until the 1980s or so, Latino-Latina history in the United States was predominantly a history of Mexican immigration. What we're often told, or hear in the media, is that this is a story about illegal immigration born out of desperation. If we're empathetic and generous. We talk about the people desperate to leave the suffering in their home country looking for better opportunities. But we don't highlight and focus on our own country's desperate need for labor. Even during periods of anti-immigration sentiment, you'll hear about this today, Mexican immigrants were brought in as exceptions, only to be discarded when it felt like the economy was getting worse. This history is also tinged with racism, as you heard in the opening quote today. Despite the significant contributions of Mexican immigrants to our farms and other sectors, gratitude, if it existed, has always quickly faded away and led to a simplistic view of their history and current state. I'm saying all this because we must acknowledge the structural causes that have shaped where people are today and strive to understand and care for them with an unwavering statement. You belong here, and I will do everything in my power to make you feel that way. And this, for me, includes providing accessible, safe, and responsive healthcare that meets the needs of the community. So here we go. Let's talk about history. Here's Dr. Garcia. And I love that you helped also give us perspective about Latino Latinx history in the U.S., specifically until the 1960s or so, was mainly the Mexican diaspora that was in the U.S. And we're going to focus on Mexican history today, because when we hear Mexico, people assume, oh, Mexico's always been where it's been, and it's been Mexico. That's one thing that I want to challenge. And the two is the limited knowledge because of the politicization in the media about, oh, people come here from Mexico illegally, and that's the immigration pattern. And that is the main issue and has always been that way. And they don't understand the broader social, political, economical forces and how U.S. actually supported the immigration for labor in so many instances in time. But the history of Mexico, the main thing that I wanted to tell people is that Mexico you know, had a long history of indigenous population with massive empires that people are aware of. If I say these words, you'll remember them, right? Aztecs, Mayans, Toltec, Olmecs, long history of empires that were brilliant in so many ways that advanced, quote unquote, civilization through their technology and what they accomplished. It was only in 1521, Hernan Cortes colonized the area and called it New Spain and tried to essentially create new land from something that already existed there. And then 1821, so 300 years later, Vincent Guerrera collaborated with a few other folks for Mexican independence. So the idea of Mexico as an independent state started sometime after 1821. 
And then 1910, there was a Mexican revolution that lasted for 10 years or so. That's a big part of the history. So I want people to know that because that's linked to the immigration patterns in the U.S. as well. So remembering that there's a long history of indigenous population, the creation of Mexico's new, I think it's important for people to know. And then I want to kick off this conversation about the history of Mexican immigration to the U.S. by starting in 1840s, because sometimes the idea of immigration is kind of funny. And I mentioned this to you, Dr. Garcia, earlier, that a lot of people became placed in the U.S. They didn't immigrate because in 1848, after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, more than 300,000 Mexican nationals were all of a sudden in the U.S. because land that was originally Mexico became the U.S. So they didn't immigrate there. They were just living in the same place. And all of a sudden, they were foreigners in a new land. And I think from that period until 1960s, there were a few different programs that encouraged Mexican immigration for labor, specifically the Bracero program. And then there was also things occurring in Mexico, as I mentioned, the Mexican Revolution, and then the Cristero War, maybe that contributed to it. But that's big overview. But Dr. Garcia, any corrections to that one? Because again, sometimes I read things and it's actually not accurate. And then two, let's talk about immigration of Mexicans to U.S., Sure. First of all, Raj, you hit the historical benchmarks right on. It's just that we don't have time to go into a lot of detail. I spent about two to three weeks just talking about the ancient civilizations that you mentioned. But you're right. The unfortunate thing because of social media, and I'm talking about social media that existed long before the iPhone came into existence, the newspapers, television, they've been portraying Mexicans as just illegal. And that's the image from the perspective of the United States. They don't know anything about these great civilizations that you mentioned, Raj, or the great scientists that Mexico has today. In fact, I don't know the complete details, but there's a, a physicist in Mexico who's credited with creating a warp drive that actually could work, right, to get us uh, into interstellar space someday. Okay, most people aren't even aware of those kind of achievements coming in from Mexico. What I try to do in my class is paint a, a different picture in regards to the image that's portrayed of Mexicans, essentially for the last 170 plus years. As Raj mentioned, the first Latino group were people of Mexican ancestry and they were incorporated through invasion and conquest. There's only two or three groups that can make that kind of claim. And those are African-Americans who run over here in chains as slaves, Native Americans, obviously, Chicanos, Mexican-Americans, and Puerto Ricanos, because Puerto Ricanos have a very similar history with the United States as Mexicans do in regards to invasion and conquest. It just happened for them a little bit later, about 50 years later into the future. And so when we look at then Mexican immigration, a topic from the perspective of Chicano studies, kind of what we call a slippery slope. Because on the one hand, if you are a person of Mexican ancestry, and there's no doubt you're part indigenous. And if you're part indigenous, then you've always been here. You haven't immigrated from anywhere, right? This is your native land. You're not a foreigner in your native land. Immigration is really kind of a more of a nation state construct that's created by the United States, actually. You know, they're the ones that create this new political boundary. Right? And so just kind of give people a picture when the United States uh, invaded and conquered Mexico and annexed 51% of Mexico's territory. Mexico, before that, stretched from what is today the California-Oregon border all the way down into Guatemala. 
That's how big Mexico was. It was huge, right? And then the war happens. There's actually a couple of wars, the Texas-Mexican War, the Mexican-American War, but we'll just say that at the end of 1848, that shrinks by 51%. And so now we got our first Latino group that's incorporated to the United States, known as Mexicans. For the next 50 years, it's just a massive transformation. You know, just think about that for a moment. Try to imagine being a Mexican in this conquered territories, all the transformation that's occurring. Everything at one time was Spanish, now it's English. Everything was based on Spanish law, now it's based on British law. And so all the custom mannerisms that were indigenous or Spanish in origin or Mexican in origin is now British, Anglo-Faction in origin. Land grants that were uh, recognized right, by the Mexican courts, by the Spanish courts, now are not recognized by the American courts. So there's a lot of changes going on. So then when we fast forward to the beginning of the 20th century, uh, Mexican immigration is not even the radar. The groups that are coming in by the millions are Eastern and Southern Europeans, not Mexicans. So in fact, I can give you a statistic. In 1920, Mexicans made up 2% of all immigrants coming into the United States. But that 2% was very important because they were making up a good significant portion of the labor force. So cheap available labor is an important denominator here. We're talking about 20th century movement of Mexicans into the United States. You cannot have a discussion about Mexican immigration without having a discussion on labor. It just goes all the way to the future, right? We heard Daniel's story about his grandparents, great-grandparents coming in as laborers. So what I like to tell my students is that if we use 1848 as this benchmark of Mexican labor in the United States, all the way to the contemporary period, then what we have then is the longest sustained movement of labor from one country to another in the history of the world, going on almost 180 years now. And it's still continuing, right? And as I like to tell my students kind of jokingly, but it's not really a joke, but it doesn't matter how many walls or how you can build it, Mexicans are still going to come. So nothing's going to stop Mexican immigration because American companies are reliant on Mexican labor. That's the number one reason. Also Central American labor in a contemporary period. But when we're looking at the first 50 or 60 years of the 20th century, it's really about Mexican labor coming in. Now we cannot ignore, by the time we get to 1910s, 1920s, we already have a Mexican population that's been in the country for 70, 80 years. So we can't forget about that population because a big portion of that population aren't immigrants. A big portion of that population aren't working in agriculture. It's the kind of vision, narrow vision, that we oftentimes take at face value. Because simultaneously, as Mexican immigrants are coming into the United States working as agricultural laborers in the 20th century, you got Mexicans living in Chicago, LA, Houston, New York, who are store owners. They're proprietors of different types of shops. They are urban dwellers, not rural dwellers. So you got this mixed population to the labor market. But what gets the focus all the time is agricultural labor, right? Because it deals with, then, what I mentioned earlier, the nation state developing borders and who can cross it, who cannot. And more importantly, the United States has always and continues to try to control that flow of labor into the United States. Some moments it's able to do that, other moments it's not, right? The flow of labor continues to come irregardless of the obstacles the United States puts up. And by the 1970s, it doesn't even matter the state of our economy. 
there was a time period in the first half of the 20th century that if our economy went bust, that means then immigration came to a standstill. That is no longer the case. We've had recession after recession in the second half of the 20th century, early part of the 21st century. And that has never stopped immigrants to the United States from Mexico because there are certain sectors of our economy that have become reliant on that labor. It is no longer just agriculture. It is now the food service industry, the hotel industry, the construction industry, the landscaping industry. They have all become heavily reliant on that labor to survive. So there could be a recession and they'll still hire those workers. And so that's one of the biggest difference between where we are today and where we were in the past. Now, in the past, when we had a huge downturn, let's take the Great Depression of the 1920s, early 1930s, what that meant for Mexican labor was the deportations, right? Mexicans were rounded up, city after city after city, put on trains and deported to the border. That's what it meant back in the early days when there was a downturn in the economy. And so it does get kind of sophisticated, but I'll give you one example of how that changed. And the best place to look at it is from the meatpacking industry. Now, here in the United States, the meatpacking industry was like the automobile industry, where you could have a livable wage working in the meatpacking industry, where you could raise a family of three or four people comfortably. Because prior to the 1970s, like the automobile industry, the meatpacking industry uh, was unionized, right? And so these unions then had the backs of workers, providing them with good medical care, great benefits, great pensions, et cetera. But in the 1970s, what began to happen was overseas markets began to undercut the U.S. market. And the meatpacking industry could no longer compete with the meatpacking industry overseas who were paying such low wages to the workers that they're making huge profits. And the U.S. was paying huge wages to the workers and making very little profit. So what we see then happening in the meatpacking industry, the meatpacking industry is still around today. It's still going strong. And here's why. It's because they de-unionized the meatpacking industry back in the 1970s. They got rid of all the unions that they no longer had high wages, that they no longer have pensions, no longer had healthcare. And what they did is they began to import immigrants into those positions. Immigrants from all over the world, actually. But there's actually good documented evidence to show that some of these meatpacking industries actually went into Mexico to recruit workers to bring them in to the United States as undocumented. So you can see then there's this kind of crazy mechanism that's at play at any given time in regards to the codependency of particular industries and immigrants. That immigrants are actually keeping a lot of these industries alive because of what? The low wages that they're being paid. But for the perspective of the immigrant, and you take Mexico as an example, the wages that they're being paid are low to domestic workers, but they're extremely high for immigrant workers. And so that's the other thing we also got to understand, that it's all relevant depending on where you're coming from. If you're in Mexico making $3 a day and you come to the United States and you're making $8 an hour, that's a no-brainer. You're coming, right? Because that's a fortune you're going to make. And then you're able to sustain a family either here in the U.S. or send money back as remittances to Mexico. So immigration then is kind of complicated when you start digging into the weeds like this. And you have to because if you want to understand immigration, other than from a black and white issue that most people have, then this is what you got to understand to understand the ebbs and flow of immigration from Mexico, Central America, other parts of Latin America to the United States and what's causing it, right? And, and the meatpacking industry is a great example of how immigrants, for lack of a better way of putting it, save the day. And one of the things that we cannot do, we cannot blame the demise of the meatpacking industry 
on immigrants because it wasn't the immigrants that did this, right? It was overseas markets, right? It was overseas companies who were paying so little wages that U.S. companies could not keep up. And the only way they could survive was to destroy the unions and their industry and import immigrants. So if we're to blame anybody, it's the owners of the companies that did this. The immigrants were just responding to the call, right, for workers. That's all they're doing. And that's all they ever did. In regards to the time period, yeah. just onto the call for labor, right? So I think that encompassed a lot. Obviously, we can go into a lot of details, but the idea that so much of immigration is dependent on labor, especially corporations needing labor and getting it however they need it to survive and make money. And I also noted your point that there's some flux in what we think about it, depending on the state of the economy. When there's depression, we're rounding up people and sending them out. When times are good, we're just living our life, ignoring the immigration. So maybe we use two examples to talk about this. You know, in 1920s, there was an immigration quota, but the agricultural lobby in the Southwest made an exception for Mexican labor. So saying we don't want too many immigrants, but we really need the labor and the lobbying able to make exceptions to continue Mexican immigration. That's one. And the two is in the 1940s, the Bracero program which I think is important to highlight because it was agricultural work in the U.S. I think what I read was it's 30 cents an hour, temp workers. The program itself got like more than 4 million Mexican laborers in and out, and they had no rights, right? You're just getting in for labor. And that happened in the 1940s to 50s or 60s. So I wonder if you could speak to that program specifically and the Southwest just lobbying to get some of these programs to continue the labor Sure, sure, no problem. Um, let's take that earlier program. So there actually was an early Bracero program, and it coincided with World War One, but it was a small program. I think about seventy or eighty thousand laborers came in during World War One, then it shut down with the end of the war. What we have then, in regards to what you referenced, nineteen twenties, what's happening during that time period is you see the United States closing the door to immigrants. In general, a lot of the laws that are being created between uh, 1917 and 1924 are really targeted towards Eastern and Southern Europeans. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, they're the largest group coming in. However, you are correct. The United States still need a source of labor. And so, you know, you, you got to think about this during this time period. There was a tremendous amount of racism, tremendous amount of racist policy Im embedded in our system. And the reason why Eastern and Southern Europeans were being stopped and you think about it, I mean, they're white people, just like the dominant coast, they're white. But they weren't the right kind of white. They didn't speak English. A lot of them dressed funny. And so they didn't fit the cultural norms of the Anglo-Saxon dominant culture in the United States. And they were coming in by the millions. Right? And so the door was slammed on those groups. Now, Mexicans were not looked at any differently. I mean, Mexicans were still viewed as inferior, right? And more importantly, you know, there was this pseudo-scientific method going around the country called eugenic during this time period. And what eugenicists did is they justified the importation of Mexican labor based on the idea that Mexicans were born to do stoop labor, that there were a group of people that were inclined to do stoop labor. And there's no better people than to have Mexicans do stoop labor in the United States. I mean, that's, that's right out of the congressional record. I always challenge my students to go into the congressional record and you'll see this language. You know, Dr. Garcia is not making it up. It's embedded in our congressional record. So then, so what I tell students is that absolutely Mexicans were exempt from the 1924 immigration 
law that basically barred immigration from all over the world, including Asia. But there was an exemption, but not just for Mexicans, because that would be too obvious in regards to what the government was trying to do. So what they did in 1924, they exempt the whole Western Hemisphere. Right? However, when you dig into that a little further, you, well, here's what you'll find out. That the only place where immigrants are coming from in the Western Hemisphere are from Mexico. Right? There's nobody else coming, you know, from Brazil, from Argentina, Chile, right, Nicaragua. They're not coming to the United States. It's only Mexicans. So by saying the Western Hemisphere, you're not favoring one country. But they knew there was really only one country that's coming in, and those are Mexicans. So that's the exemption, right? But it doesn't last very long. It lasts maybe five or six years. And then the hammer drops with the Great Depression, right? And so, yeah, so there's a, there's a moment, right? The Mexicans are exempt, but it's not from the perspective of benevolence on part of the United States. There's another thing also that's in play that I want people to understand is that one of the reasons why Mexican labor has always been preferred, especially during this first half of the 20th century, is because what the U.S. government saw in regards to Mexicans is that they would come in working agricultural labor, then once the season ended, then it would return back to Mexico. They wouldn't become permanent settlers, the majority of them. They were traditional kind of migrants coming in, doing the work, and then returning back to their place of origin in Mexico. And that's what they loved about Mexican labor, that they weren't going to stay permanently, that they were just transient labor, right? And that's a pattern that we see not only with Mexican immigrants, but Mexican-American migrants. So then what you have, Raj, in the United States, as we transition to the 1930s and the 1940s with the Bracero program, is that you're going to have three different types of workers who are Mexican origin in the United States. So on the one hand, you will have undocumented workers. You'll have Mexican-American workers. And then you will have the Bracero worker. But to the white population, they're all one and the same. They see no difference between those three groups. And so the big program you're talking about, the Bracero program, technically it's known as the Emergency Farm Labor Program that begins in 1942 and it goes all the way to December 31st, 1964. And that's when it ends in 1964. So it was around for 22 years and roughly about 4.5 million Braceros came in during that time period. So technically, it's not considered immigration. It's considered a temporary labor program where Mexican workers are contracted for six to 12 months. And once that contract ends, then they return back to their place of origin, all paid for by the U.S. government during the war period. It changes after the war in regard who's paying for it. Right? During the war, the U.S. government's footing the bill. They're paying for everything, transportation, et cetera. But after the war, the growers who want Bracero workers, they have to pay for, for that transportation. Right? So then when we look at the program itself then, we know a significant amount of these braceros between 1942 and 1964 broke their contract and remained in the United States. Now, once they broke their contract and remained in the United States, they were then labeled as undocumented workers in the U.S. Okay. However, when you look at the time period we're looking at, 1942 to 1964, become a permanent resident to get your so-called green card, it was much different back in this time period than it is now. When you look at the late 40s, 1950s, if you're undocumented, all you needed was an employer to vouch for you, that you weren't going to be a public charge, that you had gainful employment and I'm your employer 
and I'm vouching for Mr. Garcia. And that puts you on your way towards your green card. So it's very, very different back in that time period. So you can see then, officially, the Bracero program was not a form of immigration, but unofficially it does because if a worker broke his contract, he became undocumented. And again, we don't know how many did this. There hasn't been, that I know of, a significant study on this. We just know through oral interviews that I have done and other folks have done that a lot of the ex-Bracero workers who are now in their 80s broke their contracts. They tell us that. They stayed in the U.S., but eventually got their green card. And then some became U.S. citizens. It's one of the areas that's been heavily studied. Uh, there's been hundreds of books and articles written on this program. And so it's a well-known program, but not to the general public. Most of the general public uh, don't understand yeah. it or even knew that. Right? And I'll do one little last plug, not for me, but for Bracero workers. Bracero workers played an important part in the victory over the Axis powers during World War II. Right? It was Bracero workers that provided the food for the soldiers. And for the home front, you'll see article after article in the 1940s from communities saying, if it wasn't for these workers, our farmers would have died. If it wasn't for these workers, our crops would have died in the fields. And so there's praise after praise. And then, of course, if you fast forward to the contemporary period, you don't see that too much these days. Yeah. So flighty, the people in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think if people would study the Bracero program, especially in regards to the contributions that these workers did, especially during World War II. I think people would have a different outlook on Mexican labor. Yeah. There are folks out in the country trying to do that. There are a couple of places in California where monuments have been created to honor the Bracero programs in those particular communities throughout California. Because California was the largest receiver of Braceros in the whole country was California. Okay. I got just two questions. Hopefully they're short. One is any other final words that you feel like our listeners should know? We'll definitely plug the website that you had mentioned at the end. But anything else as takeaways, points that we didn't cover? I would say people just have to understand that since around 2005, 2006, the Latino population became the largest underrepresented group in the country, where before it was the African-American. And that's because of the explosion in the Chicano Latino population in the U.S. You know, a lot of people say it's because of immigration, but main culprit is natural reproduction, right? When we look at the Chicano Latino population, we're one of the youngest populations in the whole country. And that translates into high reproduction from the female perspective. It makes it important for us as a, a community, important for us as a, as a nation to understand who Chicano Latinos are, where they come from, different parts of part of Latin America, right? Or the first Mexicans, right? I actually kind of label them as the creation generation of Mexicans who who didn't immigrate from anywhere. They were already here, as you mentioned also, Raj. So I think it's important that people get a basic understanding of Chicano-Latino history. So you understand a significant population that currently makes up about 22% of the total U.S. population of the United States is going to increase by 2030 to 25-30%. That in itself is important to understand who Chicano-Latinos are. But we also have a very complex history very diverse history. We come in all shapes and sizes, figuratively and, and literally. We also come from different political backgrounds. We come from different parts of Latin America. So it's also, I think, if, from my perspective, understanding the Chicano Latino population is no small challenge because you have to understand that diversity. Again, going back to one of the themes that we had earlier in our discussion is you cannot look at Latinos as one and the same. If you do that, you'll be doing a disservice and then you won't really get the clear picture. And I just mentioned the three largest groups 
And those are Mexicans, Puerto Ricanos, and Cubanos. When you look at those three groups, just in those three groups, there's a massive amount of diversity. And the most obvious one is political ideology, where the majority of Cubanos are Republicans. And for a variety of different reasons, and the majority of Puerto Ricanos and people of Mexican origin tend to toe the Democratic Party. So just understanding why that is, if you understand that, you'll be way ahead of the game than most people. It'll give you some insight. Chicano Latino diaspora here in the United States. Yeah, well said, Dr. Garcia. I think the last question I always ask is about when you've been to the doctor or in a setting where you've received care, has there someone who's done it really well? Wow, that was a good experience who somebody understood my identity and cared for me in the way I wanted to be cared for. Or the flip side, somebody just missed and did everything wrong. You're like, don't do that as a word of advice. Any examples or experiences like that? My first experience of being treated by a person of color who was actually a Mexican-American was when I was in grad school at Washington State University. I remember I went to the doctor because, or emergency room, because I felt my heart was beating really fast. So I thought, okay, something's wrong with me. And then I got introduced to Dr. Dennis Garcia, first Latino uh, physician ever in my whole life. And back time, I was about 30 years old. So I was already into life a little bit. And he was cool as could be because here's the biggest difference. And I share this story a lot. It's because he wasn't just about business. He took the time to ask me where my parents were from. And that's what I call, that's a cool physician. That's somebody who wanted to know me as a person, right? And then, of course, he was a smart doctor because he said, Jerry, I know what's happening here. You're not having a heart attack. You're overdosing on coffee. <laughs> he goes, just go walk it off. You're going to be okay. And so that's what it was. Right. Because he asked me all these questions. What have you been doing? What's been happening? I was at the coffee shop all day today. He goes, so how many cups of coffee did you have? I go, a lot. I Just a lot. lot. You don't need to know the number. He goes, that's why you're having this effect, man. So before that, though, before that final diagnosis, he was just a cool guy. Thanks a lot, Dr. Garcia, for sharing all that information. I think, as you said, it's the first step in understanding the history of a population that's here and caring for them, being their neighbors, being kind and being more nuanced in the discussions that we have about immigration and what it means to live together in this country. I do want to mention this. I'm going to make a little plug. So a colleague of mine started an online college and it's free to the world. We don't charge anything. And we started it right at the beginning of the pandemic because there was a strong need to do online education. And then more importantly, uh, when we did a survey, people were just hungry for Chicano Latino history. We do offer courses almost year-round. You got the opportunity to take Chicano history, Latino history, Mexican-American studies. We just added a Chicano art course. And again, and I mentioned that it's free. The educators are all people, PhDs in Chicano Latino studies. So you're getting a course from professionals. So, so Daniel, if you're interested, hit me up. We'll get you set up if you want. Or anybody in the audience, I just type in Colegio Chicano de Pueblo. You're welcome. And Raj, keep this podcast going. I can tell it's a very effective tool. Awesome to learn about different backgrounds and perspectives. And now that I know about it, I'll be chiming in. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening today. I don't know how many episodes you've listened to, whether it's one or all of them, but if you enjoyed it, please subscribe and tell your colleagues to listen this week when you get to work. I'll see you next time.
This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the participants' past, current, or future employers unless explicitly expressed as so. Always seek advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with regards to your own personal questions about what medical conditions you may be experiencing. This Healthcare for Humans project is based on Duemish land and makes a regular commitment to real rent Duemish. If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Beyond the Paper Gown, hosted by Dr. Mitzi Krakover, helps people think critically about women's health issues encouraging them to question and explore the complexities of healthcare systems, scientific advancements, and societal norms. There's a really cool episode that you should check out called Midday Menopause App, and that's about how AI and sensor technology can provide personalized interventions to manage menopause symptoms effectively. Check out Beyond the Paper Gown on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.